Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Well, I'm so glad to see you. It's a uh sad that you're going to be going away in a few weeks, so I have to make the most of it. So, But I'm glad to be here in person. We're going to end up recording separately again, mm-hmm. like it's pandemic all over again. And it's going to be pandemic all over again, right? Yep. The way things are going right now, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, not looking too good for the rest of the country in terms of, you know, keeping this pandemic under control. But, you know, is what it is. We're just going to have to do what we can to make the best of it. Hopefully, we eventually get on the same team as, you know, a society and get this business under control. But by the way, Derek, when he when he said that whole thing about getting the most out of the last of our time together, Derek just meant he's going to tell as many jokes as he can <laughs> to torment me in person yes. before I make my little move to New York uh, for school and all that business, which I've been trying to get Derek to come with me pretty much since I started this process, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Derek is going to learn this lesson the hard way now that I'm going to be gone for two years. Unless Derek, of course, decides to apply to grad school and join me for the next year. Yeah, I can do that. (laughs) Oh my gosh, the lack of enthusiasm in your voice just now. I mean, my feelings are a little hurt, but it's mostly humorous. Yeah, no, I would, yeah, I I definitely do need to be back in graduate school. It's just all the logistics of making it happen is too overwhelming. Yeah, it is. I I can definitely bear testimony to that. Like, trying to go to grad school is a pain in the butt. You know, let's talk real quick about the first presidency statement. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's a historic thingy about the vaccines. Okay. So... We've got a lot of. Do we want to talk about this? Let's. I mean, you said you just want to talk really quickly about okay. it. Granted, that Derek's will really quickly is vastly <laughs> different from my really quickly, but we shall see. So what happened is, the first presidency came out with a relatively clear statement that urges and encourages vaccines. It says the ma- the vaccines are safe and effective. It says. Uh, it speaks to some of the concerns that many church members have uh, that are in a different wing of the church than I am, right, than we are. The ones mm-hmm. that are anti-vaccine. And I don't quite understand anti, the va- anti-vaccine. I don't see how it's a political issue either, right? Mm-hmm. Any more than wearing an athletic cup is a political thing. No, we all, on whatever side you are or on, see the value of wearing an athletic cup if you're playing some high-impact sports, right? Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. how is it? You know what I mean? It's weird. I know exactly what it's you mean. like, why would you be so disconnected from the facts and from an understanding of numbers and risk and an understanding of public duty, duty to yourself and your family? I just don't understand where the... I, it's not like, oh... I'm saying I don't understand as a way of criticizing them. I actually don't understand their mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, first off, I want to make uh, space for the people that I guess we call the vaccine hesitant, as I think they're different from the folks that you're talking about that we that we typically term uh, anti-vaxxers, referring more directly 
uh, to folks who spread misinformation. I can say that in the black community, at least, there is already a mistrust of the medical establishment because of our history with uh, the medical establishment. Like, I get that. But you're also going to see us still masking up and limiting our outside time, limiting our exposure. So, uh, you know, we're not the same in that regard. Uh, We've dealt with people that we call anti-vaxxers for a long time. And I more or less feel like I have a uh, decent handle on why a lot of those folks don't get vaccines. In the case of COVID, I... The thing is, the things I see is that they don't think the virus is that dangerous. They don't trust public health officials or any vaccine advocates. Uh, and, and they don't think the vaccine itself is uh, dangerous. Now, when you tell some of these folks that you know someone who has uh, passed from COVID, they'll often ask how old the people were or if they had any pre existing conditions. So you can immediately see a uh, lack of empathy toward the elderly and those who already struggle with uh, their health. And uh, you also see an inability or a refusal to engage multiple sources of information. And I suspect that this is because that uh, the anti-vaxxer knows that most peer-reviewed sources are going to disagree with them, which would raise the question, why do they ignore it? Why do they ignore uh, multiple media sources? Why do they ignore multiple peer-reviewed uh, sources that speak on the efficacy of vaccines or the deadliness or at least the severity of COVID? Now, I believe it's because the consequence for acknowledging peer-reviewed research and expert scientists, that would condemn their current position, which basically amounts to a commitment to prioritizing one's right to ignore public health advice or mandates over someone else's right to live. Uh, Their moral high ground would vanish completely, and they'd become the villains in their own stories. That is a terrible weight to bear, and it's natural and understandable that the human mind would prefer to protect itself by believing information that confirms its own biases. So, as much as I hate to say it, I think there's room for empathy for these folks if it means that it gives us a better chance to protect other people from the misinformation that these same folks spread. Now, I acknowledge that a that I may not be in a position to say that. I, I tend to speak with a lot of sharpness when it comes to folks who uh, who do things that endanger the well-being of others. And the greater part of me still feels like trying to coddle the willfully ignorant is uh, validating them when they shouldn't be validated. But I fear it may be more complicated than I'm making it sound at the moment. And uh, therefore, I cautiously, with an asterisk, encourage uh, empathy uh, toward these folks. Yeah, well, can't they feel good about fighting the virus? No. Like, that is a conservative value to, like, defend America from, <laughs> like, and to sacrifice stuff. Like, think about all the, 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 you know, our soldiers we sent off in World War II. Mm-hmm. That was a sacrifice. You have yeah. to give up some of your rights. Yep. You have to give up yep. some of your safety. You have to take on risk. Yeah, the vaccine maybe has a very, 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 very minuscule risk compared to to the virus, right? Uh But look, if people are willing to sacrifice, if people are willing to temporarily ration their their groceries and gasoline and all these other things so that our uh, soldiers could have copper for the fighting the Nazis, like, 
yeah, that is the spirit of the best in conservative America. Why couldn't mm-hmm. they do the same thing here and say, yeah, we're going to have to wear a mask for some time. We're going to have to do this. We're going to have to do this. But we're going to get together and have our little victory gardens and win the war. And we we very could have easily have done that if we had moral leadership on the conservative side, both in the church and in the political arena. Mm-hmm. But here's where it gets back to the faith. It's the issue of personal revelation. And I, after this first presidency statement came out, all this stuff came out of the woodwork. People saying, I prayed about it and got revelation that my family is not supposed to be vaccinated. So, yeah. Those comments on that little announcement on the church's social media sites was just wild. That comment section was like living in the upside down. And the irony, of course, is the gays, Mm -hmm. because so many gay folks have said that they've received personal revelation that they need to be themselves and that they should marry the partner Mm -hmm. that they have fallen in love with and just have a normal life like everyone else has. And Mm -hmm. what everyone else takes for granted is part of a full human life. And then all these other people come out and say, nope, you can't do that because the prophet said this. And I don't care about your personal revelation. And I'm not trying to be anti-gay. But the only reason I'm doing this is because I have to follow the prophet. Mm -hmm. But here they are. I'm making a big assumption that it's a lot of the same people. Here they are. I think it's a safe assumption. That they're saying, well, when it affected you, I I judged you and damned you for going with your personal revelation. But now that I want to not have this vaccine for whatever reason I don't understand... I'm just going to go with my personal revelation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's very hypocritical to uh, not allow other people to do the very thing that you're doing. There really is a uh, lot of hypocrisy there. Several weeks ago, we read the commandment to esteem our brothers as ourselves in one of these lessons. And we certainly don't do that when we give ourselves certain graces and deny those same graces to others. When we demand respect for our own personal experiences and our interpretations of those same experiences, but we invalidate the experiences of others because they don't make sense to us, or put another way, because we have filtered the experiences of others through our own lens and decided that they aren't valid because they don't compute to us. I had this experience many times. Um, A while back, I was explaining to a white friend the racial implications of getting followed in a store And it wasn't computing to him because that wasn't his experience. So he suggested that it may have been just an uh, overzealous uh, employee. But still, that's something that happens to me and lots of other black folks all the time. Meanwhile, it never happens to him. So does he get to decide that I don't understand my own experience because it doesn't make sense to him or match his own? Absolutely not. Um, Another thing is I'm probably going to stop saying, uh, follow the prophet when the brethren say something controversial or radical that I happen to agree with, because this is the same weapon homophobes employ to reinforce their homophobia. I'm not going to follow the prophet when he's peddling homophobia. Saying follow the prophet only when it suits me seems almost as disingenuous as it sounds coming out of the mouths of 
homophobes and racists and misogynists, and perhaps they sense a similar impotence of the prophetic when the prophet encourages vaccines and masks, as I do when the prophet quotes the proclamation and uh, the law of chastity. I'm not too sure. I'm just talking at this point. But when we finally get to the come follow me, we will get to discuss a uh, solution to this little conundrum that's presented in uh, section 91, I believe. And let me, this is going to be the last thing I say about this. What I don't understand is, okay, I, I get why asking people to change their minds on LGBT issues really is a substantive worldview change. But asking people to take a vaccine, they shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to change any of your theology mm-hmm. to take a vaccine. Like, mm-hmm. you shouldn't have to change any of your worldview to take a vaccine. Unless your worldview is that China put these microchips that are going to take away our student loans because we have to go to space. I don't even mm-hmm. know what these conspiracy theories are, but if these microchips are going to take away our student loans, sign me up for that vaccine. <laughs> I like I don't care. Like I don't even know what their conspiracy theories are. Mm-hmm. But theoretically, like good conservative Republicans should already be on board with that science. Maybe they're creationists, but there's no, they shouldn't, I don't get it why they're opposed to the vaccine. But I don't think they should have to change their worldview. I just wish we had more moral leadership from the right. Because the thing is, Trump got the vaccine. All these mm-hmm. Republican leaders- and he said to get the vaccine. All these Republican leaders at the state and, and federal level they all get the vaccine. Our church leaders got the vaccine. Where's the moral leadership on the right? They pretend that they're the party of morality. Well, where's your moral leadership? You, they could have gotten all these people behind them, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so let's move on and talk about Oaks. Yeah, Oaks, man. Um, so I decided kind of on a whim last Sunday, I was in uh, San Diego at the time for a you know, just to visit my family, but I happened to catch a uh, YSA conference that was happening out there. And that's how I heard about the uh, devotional. My friend and I that were present, we actually ended up skipping it because we're like, Oaks is going to speak. I don't think we want to go see that. And uh, sure enough, you know, the next day, social media was abuzz with a lot of his uh, comments. Um, I I don't know where exactly I want to start with this, but I do want to point out a few things that he said that, you know, stood out to me. I want to read the initial statement, the one that's been making the rounds on social media. And then I want to address uh, a couple of these points here that that President Oaks decided to make. Uh, He said, this weekend, I had the opportunity to speak with a wonderful group of single members of the church. One of the messages I shared with them is that as a church and as a culture, we need to lead out in demonstrating inclusion. That is a key part right there. We're going to come back to that. And then he says, we live in a time when inclusion is weak or absent in political relations, in cultural relations, and in some personal relations. Instead, there is worldly praise and pressure for divisions that draw us apart, for diversity that impairs our unity, for reliance on family descent instead of individual qualifications, and we are influenced by a culture of opposition. And then he said, here are some brief definitions about what I mean. And then he goes through this list of things he said, divisions, uh, diversity, uh, opposition, dissent. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just interesting and it's confusing. I want to focus on this thing he said about diversity. He says, again, here's some de- definitions of what I mean. 
And he says, at a time when diversity is earnestly sought and greatly praised, the restored church opposes the popular definition of diversity in its organization and composition. We are all children of God, and that is our most important characteristic. So real quick, I can acknowledge and agree with that last sentence. We are all children of God, and that is indeed our most important characteristic. What President Oaks doesn't really do, though, is clarify his definition on what the popular definition of diversity is. And then he further goes on to say that the church opposes um, this popular definition in its organization and in its composition. And I'm just like, what definition of diversity is he talking about? Because, like, I, I don't know. I can't be totally sure what exactly he's saying, but just a October general conference, I think it was, Quentin Cook he talked about celebrating diversity. I got this quote here. He said, with, all, with our all-inclusive doctrine, and reminder, President Oaks said that inclusion is a value that we have. He wants us to have inclusion. So this is uh, Quentin Cook again. With our all-inclusive doctrine, we can be an oasis of unity and celebrate diversity. Unity and diversity are not opposites. We can achieve greater unity as we foster an atmosphere of inclusion and respect for diversity, close quote. So my question is obviously, what is the difference between the diversity that Oaks is talking about, um, you know, the, the diversity that he's opposing and says is a problem, and, what, and, and between the diversity that Elder Cook is talking about? Do you have any idea about that? Like what this diversity is? Yeah, I think... A lot of the leaders of the church have gotten criticism for the fact that their leadership is not diverse. Uh-huh. It's a lot of regard to gender, regard to race, with regard to age, right? There's a lot of uh a lot of there's a lack of diversity. And I think their their response to that is to say, look, we're all the same. We're all called of God. As long as we have good people in the right place, it doesn't matter that we don't have enough women. It doesn't matter that we don't have enough people of color because we're all the same. And that's what something we learn from critical race theory, but you don't even have to have that. You just have to have experience in the world to realize, yeah, it does matter if you don't have visibility, representation of everyone in leadership mm -hmm. uh, especially disability right we've yeah. got we have a lack of that as well at least visible disabilities uh -huh. so that's i think what what oaks is saying he's saying yeah we're all we're almost all old white men but that's yeah. fine because because it doesn't matter what we are because we can do as good a job as anyone no matter what your diversity thing is whereas in the I world the world I hate to say, because the world doesn't have one definition. But I think what Oaks is referring to is this idea that in the corporate world, we need to have balance and representation on the uh, on the board of directors or whatever. Uh-huh. Is that, I don't know, like that just seems like what Quentin L. Cook is still talking about. Like diversity in the church is still, like is Quentin L. Cook talking about a more general diversity and perhaps Elder Oaks is, or President Oaks is talking about a diversity in, you know, leadership or whatever? Because I think that kind of still falls under the same umbrella. Do you think that's the diversity he yeah, opposes? I don't know what he's, what he's, uh, 
I imagine with Oaks, there's the gays under that somewhere. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like absolutely. Uh, women, women's yeah. equality. He's probably opposed Definitely. to that too. So that's probably what it is: the gays and the women. Uh, maybe intellectual diversity as well in terms of people's opinions and perspectives. He doesn't mm-hmm. want uh, ideological diversity. I'm assuming. My pro- I have a lot of problems with what he's saying. As do I. I don't. I, I do want to kind of like talk a little bit more about this diversity piece. Like I, like I said, I can agree that our most important characteristic is that we're children of God. But, you know, I view diversity as a tool of living into that identity, not as a, not as something that opposes it or prevents us from doing that. Something that's in opposition to that further, even the early church seemed to subscribe to this popular definition of diversity. You know, after, after Christ's ascension, the leaders of the church in Antioch, they were, they were mad diverse. Like Antioch was the capital right. of the Christian world at the time. And, you know, all of those leaders were from at least the ones that are mentioned. They were from different nations. We got like, uh, who do we got here? We, we got a Greek speaking Hellenistic Jew from Asia Minor, another Hellenistic Jew from the Mediterranean, a dude from Cyrene, which is modern day Libya, and another dude from uh, from uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Looks like Niger, what is modern day Niger. And another member of the Jewish aristocracy. Like we we never hear about three of those guys again in the New Testament. So that just leads me to believe, you know, why were we told about them? And I think that uh, one of the reasons that detail was included is so that we could understand that Antioch, the integrated church, the Christian capital of the world, the first time in history that the disciples were even called Christians that that place was culturally diverse. And why would we need to know that? I think there's a few reasons we would need to know that. And uh, at least one of which Paul lets us know multiple times in multiple ways. My favorite is probably uh, the reason given in Ephesians 3, 4, 6. And I only know this scripture because you quoted it two years ago when we had this discussion on uh, on Ephesians. But uh, the scripture says, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of this promise in Christ by the gospel. Close quote. That mystery that Paul is talking about is a multiracial, multiethnic, mm-hmm. multilingual, multicultural church, a diverse church mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. people historically divided are uh uh, brought back together in Christ. Diversity is one of the most powerful uh, uh, evangelical witnesses we could have as a church because it is a manifestation of the reconciliatory power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to be clear, we're not supposed to uh, we're not supposed to be erasing other folks' culture. That is not what Paul is talking about right. here. We're not supposed to. Um, you know, just take their history, take their culture and erase it and force them all under one history and one culture. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not all supposed to be the Utah church. That's not the goal of diversity. That's that's not even diversity. That's assimilation. We don't want that. Having a group of people, however, with very little in common, except for the common love and respect and reverence for Jesus, that's a pretty powerful ish right there, bro. Right. That tells right. the world that we got something not just special, but transcendent. So transcendent. And not only is this a witness, diversity is a fulfillment 
of biblical prophecy and commandments that Jesus and God themselves gave. Uh, uh, the Old Testament Jehovah said, my house will be a will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Christ told Isaiah in, uh, in uh, Isaiah 56, verse 7. And then he said the same thing later, ironically, to the money changers that he drove out of the temple as they occupied the only spaces in the temple that they were allowed to worship. And then he goes and says, the Great Commission was to preach the gospel to everyone. And after Peter got his vision to preach to the Gentiles, the world, the word all appears like, at least 10 times, really driving home the point that everyone who would accept Christ has a place among the beloved community. The first two verses of the Doctrine and Covenants. Remember when you quoted this at the beginning of the year, those first two verses, it says, um, okay, let me just read these. This is why I need to have my scriptures open all the time. Scriptures, Doctrine and Covenants, section one, verse one and two, what this says. Hearken, O ye people of my church, saith the voice of him who dwells on high, whose eyes are upon all men. For verily I say, hearken ye people from afar, and ye that are upon the islands of the sea, listen together. For verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape, and there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. It communicates in multiple ways that the gospel is meant for and is intended to reach everybody so like all this just has me like yeah what you mean oaks what are you talking about can you clarify what your problem with diversity is because every mention every allusion to diversity in the scriptures is a net positive what is he talking about like i don't know yeah he's coming from his background as a legal scholar where you need to be this whole justice is blind thing that it's somehow neutral and objective and you don't look at the anything. It's just based on the pure facts or the pure merit of the case or whatever, whatever. And what we're realizing is that you have to take those things into account or else you miss the pattern. You miss the justice mm -hmm. piece of it. And you get injustice if you don't actually look at all the variables and all the details. I want to mm -hmm. go back and talk about this because... You know, as a lawyer and a and a justice, he had, he defined some of his terms. Some but what he didn't define, and he didn't actually define them really uh, rigorously either, so that we would know exactly what he's talking about. He did not define inclusion. He says, as a church and as a culture, we need to lead out in and demonstrating inclusion. But the sneaky thing is, he didn't define inclusion because mm -hmm. I think that's where we would we would catch him mm -hmm. because. Let me just rewind and say something kind of funny is if you go back to the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council debate, uh -huh. people might think it's a debate between inclusion versus exclusion concerning the Gentiles. But mm -hmm. it's actually a debate between inclusion and inclusion, two kinds of inclusion, mm -hmm. because the opponents at the Jerusalem Council, they didn't say, oh, no, the Gentiles are not welcome. They said they are welcome. Anyone. Anyone, anyone in the world can become part of this movement, but you must first essentially convert to Judaism. Mm. You must, if male, be circumcised. You must agree to keep the law of Moses. You basically have to become Jewish before you can become Christian. That's inclusive, according to one definition of inclusive. Uh -huh. Now, it's not my definition of inclusive because you're basically making, you're fixing people's identity and not letting them be themselves. 
And so the real part, the real beauty of Acts 15 and also Galatians isn't that you included that the, the Gentiles, it's that you included the Gentiles as Gentiles on their own terms. That's, I think, real inclusion. And I think Oaks would say gays are welcome, women are welcome. He would say that, but he would say you have to come in and pretend to be straight, or you have to come in and have a secondary place as a woman, or whatever he's saying. And he counts that as inclusion because you can show up. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why he doesn't define inclusion. Now, I should say that I come at this as someone who is soaked in the New Testament. And so everything that Oak says, I'm going to uh, measure against what I n know from the New Testament. First of all is Oak's attitude. And his comments reveal a particular attitude. Mm -hmm. He feels automatically entitled to people's agreement. You, have you noticed that when he, when he speaks, he speaks, and not, not every general authority speaks this way. But he definitely speaks with, like, I'm going to say it, and I don't have to defend it or explain it. I'm just assuming you're going to agree. Because otherwise, he would have explained it better. He would have argued it better, and he didn't actually make a case here. I don't know where that comes from. I have noticed the way he speaks. I haven't uh, identified it in that particular way. But I have noticed that there is something there, and I'm just like, where does this come from? I took it as an insult to my intelligence, basically. I'm just like, do you really think we're not going to – we're just going to let that slide? I, I don't know if I would uh, phrase that as an entitlement to people's agreement, but I certainly would identify it in some way. I, I simply identify it as this is an insult to my intelligence that you think I'm just not going to scrutinize you. Yeah, well, he feels that he doesn't have to make a case. He feels mm -hmm. that he can just say it, and it, it demands respect just because he said it. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't work to convince or explain. He just says it, and that's very contrary to what I know of the best in the New Testament. Paul did the opposite the Apostle Paul's method, especially in Romans and especially in 1 Corinthians, is to appeal, to persuade, to make a case, to explain, to argue, to convince. Um, and also in 2 Corinthians and Galatians where he doesn't assume his authority as an apostle but actually makes a case for it. He says, here's why what I'm saying is, here's why I have authority. Here's the implications of all that. And mm -hmm. so that's something that I that I expect from a true apostle of the Lord is to have humility and grace and to take a measure of meeting us where we are and actually making the case and, yes. and attempting to persuade and being accountable mm -hmm. to that reasoning. Make it make sense. That is not a lot to ask. And, uh, and I think, like I said, he doesn't define inclusion. And I think the reason he doesn't is because then we would be able to hold him accountable to that concerning LGBTs. Because if he says inclusion and then defines it, we could say, look, you need to be inclusive of LGBTs, mm -hmm. depending on how he defines it. So he mm -hmm. just doesn't define it. And then his, his talk about the world's definition of diversity is just a scare tactic. Like labeling something with the world, it gets people to shut off their brain and shut off their empathy. Mm -hmm. The world doesn't have a single uniform agreement on what diversity is. You can't get, like, just spend three seconds in the LGBT community. We don't agree on anything. 
Like, we don't have a definition of diversity. I don't even know what he's talking about. But what I do know is Paul's understanding of diversity. Mm-hmm. So I'm not on board with the world's definition of diversity, but of Paul's. He says, he uses the word diversity three times in 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 4. And he goes on to talk about the beauty and strength of diversity. Remember, he's writing 1 Corinthians to a fractured community who's fighting and d- divided. And he's trying to talk about, actually, diversity is good. Mm-hmm. You need to make room for one another. You need to realize that people have different callings, different responsibilities, different gifts. We don't all have to be the same. Uh And and we're not all made the same by the gospel. We've got one body with many members, and we treat those different body parts differently. And here's my biggest problem with Oaks is his central claim. We are all children of God, and that is our most important characteristic. Yeah. And Um, the problem with this isn't that it's false right. because it, like it, if he said something's false it would be easy to deal with because then we just show it's false mm-hmm. the problem here is that it's true mm-hmm. and one of the biggest challenges is that it's true but applied irresponsibly mm-hmm. and a lot of people think that just because a statement is true you get to say it mm-hmm. or it's automatically you can say it whenever you want but that's not valid. For example, let's talk about blackmail for a second. Like if I know some horrible secret about you that's true, and I say, give me all your money, or else I'm going to tell the world this true statement, and then you don't give me your money, and then I go tell the world this true statement about you, that's wrong, even though everything I said was true. Mm-hmm. Oaks knows that. He's used the blackmail example in some of his talks about why just because something is true doesn't mean that it's useful. And this is another one of uh, Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians, that just because you have knowledge or you have the truth doesn't mean that it's beneficial if you're not using it to build people up, as he says in 1 Corinthians 8 and also 1 Corinthians 13. And just to put a, an extra exclamation point on this, let's look at Satan in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Everything Satan says to Jesus is true, right? And mm-hmm. Jesus responds by by naming that and by quoting scripture to refute the thing that actually is true anyway. Mm-hmm. So, and I also think that I'm trying to remember, but I think everything or almost everything that Lucifer says in the temple is actually true. Mm. It's about how it functions. And so that's where I want to go. And this is the same problem we had with All Lives Matter because <laughs> All Lives Matter is technically true. There I said it. True. Okay. It's technically true. Yeah. But we shouldn't say it because of how it functions and because of who uses it and what the impact is and the associations that that statement has and what the life of its own that has taken on, right? And within that context, we should not be saying all lives matter. Mm-hmm. So we can't just look at Oaks's statement and say, oh, it's true, and we're done thinking. We have to do more work. So here's how to be a good theologian. One of the keys is to ask this question. It's a magical question. Always remember this question. Ask the question, how does this function? Okay, And you can use this in terms of... Uh, 
critical race analysis. If you're looking at an institution or a policy or something, ask, how does it function? What are the effects? So when people say we are all children of God, we should ask, how does that statement function? And let's look at some of these examples. And let's, let's do a dialogue on this. I'm going to say something, and after everything I say, I want you to say something like, no, our most important identity is as a child of God, or <laughs> we're all children of God, or mm-hmm. some all lives matter thing, okay? Some so, all lives matter thing. Yes. I didn't do that. <laughs> okay, so here's the first one. Number one, I use a wheelchair, so it is important that you build a ramp for me. Yeah, but it's important that the people who can walk have a way around too, so like... All abilities, I don't know. <laughs> All, <laughs> All abilities, abilities oh no, right. Or here's another one. I'm allergic to peanuts, so it's important that I have a meal that won't kill me. Gah. We're all children of God. Yeah, we're all children of God. All allergies matter. I don't know. Like, Shoot. like um, or my bone is broken. Can you give me additional help? Yeah, but if I like give you help, then I'm going to have to give this person with no broken bones some help as well. Like, they're going to feel ignored if I help you. Yeah, okay. I'm a Spanish speaker and I can't understand what you're saying. Please provide it in Spanish. Yeah, but then if I provide it for you in Spanish, then the people in English who like number most of this congregation, they're not going to be able to understand and I'm they're going to feel left out. Yeah, and so this is enough examples. Like, if you... <clears throat> After a concrete need, just say, whoops, we're all children of God, and we're mm-hmm. going to treat everyone equally, and our most important character... Okay, look, if you're drowning, your most important characteristic right there is that you're drowning. I'm just going to mm-hmm. say it. That's more important than you're being a child of God. In the sense that if you don't save the person, you are not recognizing the image of God in that person. Correct. And if you truly believe that people are children of God, you're going to give them the ramp. You're going to give them the assistance they need. You're going to translate in Spanish. Mm-hmm. You're going to do all these things. And that involves treating people differently mm-hmm. in order to secure the person's dignity as a child of God, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to ignore your identity. I'm going to ignore your needs. I'm going to ignore the positionality and just say, well, how did Oaks phrase it? I want to I wanna say it exactly like he said it. We are all children of God, and that is our most important characteristic. Yeah, okay. How's that statement functioning? And I think what mm-hmm. he's doing is he's using it to erase the particular needs and identities that are inconvenient for him. Women, people with disabilities, uh, minorities of of race, class, gender, orientation, gender mm-hmm. identity, all of these things. So let me just go on. I'm not done. Okay. You knew I wasn't done. <laughs> and I think that's where people misquote Galatians 3.28. Mm-hmm. This is the one that says that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither, uh, there's n- not male and female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. Now that's true. Uh-huh. It's, it's it's basically the um, the all are alike unto God mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the the New Testament, but ask yourself how does that function when it hit the Galatian community? Mm-hmm. It didn't erase the Gentile identity, but affirmed it. It affirmed Gentiles as Gentiles instead of saying we're going to homogenize everyone into kosher keeping circumcised Jews. He's saying, look, we're going to have mixed practice. Some of you are going to keep kosher. Some of you aren't. Some of you are going to be circumcised. Some of you aren't. 
it's okay to bring your full identity there because we're all one in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say we're all the same in Christ. Mm -hmm. He says we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so the contrast with Galatians 3.28 is to ask how it functions. And out of context, you could use it maybe to erase people's identities, but Paul uses it to affirm people's identities and include them on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And so diversity doesn't get erased or ignored in the New Testament. I want to look at this one verse from, this is Revelation 5 verse 9, John's vision of the future glory. John says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So John saw diversity. Mm -hmm. It was visible. It was audible. He saw and heard diversity. We don't mm -hmm. erase diversity. So, yeah, okay, fine. We're all children of God. But what are you going to do with that? Are you going to treat people like children of God? Or are you going to treat them in a way that it, it assumes that all children of God have the same needs? Like, which parents assume that all their kids have exactly the same needs? I, I don't know of any parent that, I'm not a parent, but I know enough about parenthood to know that they don't, Good parents don't treat their kids the same. Mm -hmm. They need different things. They may have different responsibilities or different personalities or you can, whatever. Anyway, so that's the last thing I wanted to say about Oaks for now. I'm going to have more about Oaks later when we get mm -hmm. into the Come Follow Me. Mm -hmm. Is um, I promise you, he says, that as you support the restored gospel and its policies, programs, and directions <laughs> from our leaders, you will have great happiness and abundant blessings from the Lord. Now, he doesn't want to be accountable to that. Like, Otherwise, mm. he, would, he would invite feedback about mm -hmm. policies, programs, and directions. He would have a conversation. Right. Paul had a conversation with the people he wrote a letter to. It was a mm -hmm. back and forth. Now, it wasn't always pretty, mm -hmm. but there was a give and take. There was a sense of Paul had to go back and actually explain things better because he didn't explain it the first time. You see this in Second Corinthians. You see this in Second Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. Like, why isn't Oaks available? To also, get... just why did he say that? What he's wanting to do is, is he's essentially bluffing and saying, He's assuming that he gets to speak with authority and he's going to bluff and say, look, just get on board with these policies, programs, and procedures and you're going to be blessed. And he does has not listened to the tears and the outcry of my people. Right. It doesn't work. I'm right. telling you that, that what, what Oak said is a false promise. Absolutely. It does not work. I was like, you can't make that promise, Oaks. Have you ever seen that Keen Peele slave auction sketch where like... Uh-oh. I don't think so. Okay. But anyway, there's just like this part where like the joke is there's two, there's three slaves and the one that get picked is like demonstrably shorter and thinner than the other two available slaves, yet he's the one who gets bid on and oh. like the one to go next. And then Keegan-Michael Key's character goes... Not true. That's gobbledygook. That's gobbledygook. How does that happen? Like, it, that was my response yeah. to reading that particular line. I'm just like, 
I, I was like, he says, I promise as you support the restored gospel and its policies, programs, and directions, you will have great happiness and abundant blessings. I'm just like, not true. That's gobbledygook. You know that, like, how does he not know that that is not true? We, we have demonstrable evidence. We have evidence that certain policies are not bringing people great and happiness. Change. And policies change. Now, they claim, they claim that doctrine doesn't change, and of course it does. Every major mm-hmm. doctrine we've had has changed. I mean, that's part of being a church of the restoration is you always are growing and improving. But they admit that policies change. They change policies all the time. Mm-hmm. And and it means that we've that the needs of a growing church mean that stuff has got to change. Mm-hmm. And so how can you support something knowing that well, in many cases the policy needs to change. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so what where are we with time because I we we talked a lot already. Yeah, we're at the 45 minute mark. Oops. It's fine. It's not fine because I still got a lot of stuff to say about the come follow me stuff. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. We can go to the come follow me then. Okay. Uh, do we want to start with, uh, like, are we good to go in order? Start with section 89? Yeah, let's do 89. Okay. So uh, the come follow me section, this this week is going to be 89 through uh, 92. And uh, section 89 is uh, the word of wisdom. And the only thing I want to say about this real quick is we just got to start with the fact that the, we got the word of wisdom because of Emma Smith. And we just straight mm-hmm. up left her name yep. out of the revelation, out of the historical header in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's just yet more, you know, erasure of the influence of women on revelations. Like, that's not to say that every revelation here fails to mention the women that ex- inspired them or whatever, but just like this is just speaks to our tendency of pretty much everything in scripture to leave women's voices out and their influence on a significant revelation. One that's Mm -hmm. now part of the temple recommend questions. I'm just like, how are we just going to leave Emma, Emma's name out of that? Like that just doesn't seem right. And also you look at what prompted this particular revelation. And again, this revelation made it to the temple recommend interview questions. And yet what prompted it was basically Emma Smith complaining about having to clean up after a bunch of messy dudes who left the upstairs attic or whatever in a cloud of smoke and a floor stained with tobacco spit. And I'm just like, so we got a whole revelation because of that. A a revelation that's now part of the Temple Recommend interview questions. Yet there are matters of more significance that we can't seem to get further revelation on. Like, what's going on with that? There are significantly less, you know, I don't want to say this was trivial, but like, I would say that revelations and complaints concerning, you know, how we treat uh, people on the margins at this moment in time, at this moment in history, queer lives, those complaints aren't being heard. We're not getting revelations on that yet. We were able to get revelations based on something like this. And the thing is, yes, it it was responsive to the particular uh, like I said, the people prompt the prophets. I've yes. said that a number of times. And yes. here we've got someone with a concrete concern went to the prophet and yep. got a revelation. Yep. But another thing is this whole this whole situation is responsive to what's going on in the larger American movement with the, the temperance movement, right? And so you're engaging through revelation what's going on in the broader culture. Now, why aren't we doing that with LGBTs? Mm-hmm. That's We've the got, question. We're swimming in this. That is the question. This is one of the most important civil rights issues of this generation. Why don't we have a revelation on that? Mm. 
I mean, some people are going to try to argue that we have gotten revelation on this, quote unquote. I put that in scare quotes, but, you know, nothing like what's written in the Doctrine and Covenants. Right. It does not. It's not a breakthrough. Right. It doesn't actually bring more light and truth into the world. It doesn't solve the problem. We've just they they're just. Yeah. So let me say something about real quick. Oh, real quick is relative when I'm speaking. <laughs> but thank you for acknowledging that. This is DNC 89, verse 11. Every herb in the season thereof and every fruit in the season thereof, all these to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And I posted something uh, about two years ago. I made a case online that it's my conviction that food, which is the fruit of exploitation, um, is in violation of the word of wisdom. Mm. And this is this is like a multi-step process to get there but basically if you have exploited workers unjust working conditions or wages who are providing food and you buy that food and eat it what you're actually doing is eating the fruit of exploitation and there's mm -hmm. a problem for me because it says all these to be used with prudence and thanksgiving mm -hmm. and how can you be prudent Mm -hmm. Or how can you eat something with thanksgiving if you're denying the image of God in your neighbor? And I have a number of uh, quotes here from the scriptures about labor rights mm -hmm. that I'm not going to talk about. I'm just going to post this. I'll make a Facebook post about all these things uh, for the sake of time. And also it would be easier to read than for, for me to say. But basically, this is a way of bearing one another's burdens and... Um, being true to the the principles of workers' rights and workers' justice. And uh, people are not objects to be exploited and making sure that we uh, have these things in place. This is one way that I can use the principles of our religion around the word of wisdom and being mindful of what you eat. Mm -hmm. I can latch that mm -hmm. on to values of justice and um yeah so that's that's where i was going with that all right the next thing i want to talk about is in section 90 verse 11 and this i think is really powerful it says for it shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue and in his own language it's repeated there uh Twice. This is important. Through those who are or uh, through those who are ordained unto this power by the administration of the Comforter, shed forth upon them for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm. So here's a commandment to treat people differently. We are supposed to treat different people differently. Now everyone is going to get all upset about that because of their assumptions right mm -hmm. they've been told that oh we just treat everyone the same no we don't we shouldn't um we treat people justly we treat people rightly we treat people um with fairness but we don't treat people exactly the same because that would lead to grave injustices mm -hmm. so we're supposed to treat different people differently based on how they are positioned and what they need if they need something in a different language we're supposed to preach the gospel to them in that language this isn't, oh, well, your most important identity is a child of God. No, your most important identity is a child of God that speaks a certain language and needs to hear it in that language. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, I get. Do you get? You get why these people? It's like those people who say um, that identifying injustice based on color is racist because you're you're naming the race. <laughs> like, no, naming someone's race is not racist, but right. they are socialized to think that they can score points and play gotcha mm. by saying, "Oh, if you talk about race, then you're racist." Mm-hmm. And yes, there are scriptures in the Bible that condemn favoritism and injustice and partiality. Mm-hmm. But right. that's why you have to remember my crater from a few weeks ago. Oh my gosh, crater is back. Crater is back. Crater is back. And the short version of crater is, at one time I thought all you had to do was get the content right mm-hmm. in order to be faithful to the scriptures. But no, in order to be faithful to the scriptures, you get you have to get six things right. One is the content, right? But you also have to get the rationale right. Mm-hmm. You have to get the audience right. You have to get the tone right. You have to get the emphasis right. And you also have to get any rebuttals right to see if there's any other contrasting things anywhere else in the scripture that could provide nuance or clarity or uh, some type of contrast mm-hmm. so that you can implement everything with a judicious and responsible approach. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are places where it says we're not supposed to be have favoritism, especially in James. Mm-hmm. But there's also places where we're supposed to treat people differently, like in Romans 12, verse 15, which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you have to know in order to do the different thing for the different people? You have to actually know what the different people are in. Mm -hmm. You have to know who's rejoicing. You have to know who's weeping. You have to label people based on those identities. You don't just say, we we rejoice with children of God. We weep with children of God. No. Paul names the identity. You're supposed to notice how they're situated, and then you treat them differently. Mm -hmm. That is a commandment. So um, another example of treating different people differently is in the redistribution of resources. We see Mm -hmm. this in Acts 2 and Acts 4, but also in the United Order, Mm -hmm. where different people contribute different things and they get different things based on their needs. And all of this folds back into, obviously, what I was saying about Oak. So you can see how that all connects. And let me just say one thing more about... DNC, uh, well, I'm going to say more than one thing. Whoops. <laughs> we're going to have to cut some of this out. I don't know what we're going to do. Right. But verse 15 of, of section 90 is, to, it says, and set in order the churches and study and learn and become acquainted with all good books and with languages, tongues, and people. The leaders need to do their homework. And they haven't done their homework on LGBT issues. You can tell based on how they speak about it. Mm-hmm. You can tell, like, when they say, oh, we've all got trials or, you know, we've, we've all got temptations. They haven't listened to us for three seconds. Mm-hmm. Or you would be able to tell this is a radically different thing than just having a temptation to sin or a trial or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they need to study and learn. And this is given to church leaders. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about Vienna Jacks for just a second. I think that's oh. how you pronounce her name. Oh, I'm snap. Not I've been sure. saying Jacques this entire time. <laughs> I thought that's what it was, but then I thought I read somewhere that it was Jacks. Okay. Jacques, I don't know. But right. Sister Vienna, and I'm not going to read all the verses, but it's verses 28 through 31 where she is 
um, invited to contribute to the building up of Zion financially mm-hmm. and that she would be rewarded in due time and that she would have an inheritance from the hand of the bishop, which is basically you get an allowance of you're going to get your needs provided for that out of uh, the common pot. So that's mm-hmm. how it actually works. Mm-hmm. And then she may have peace in the land. So the interesting thing about Vienna is that she's not identified based on a relationship to a man. She's not identified as the daughter of so-and-so, the husband, the wife of so-and-so husband, or the the mother of some son. She is not defined based on her relationship to a man. And I'm sure there's a lot more we could say about her, but I just wanted to name that one thing to see that here you have a model of faith mm-hmm. who is engaging with God on her own terms as a woman. Mm-hmm. And she's from Boston. That and she hurt. is from Boston, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, she's from Boston, mm-hmm. joined the church in 1831, and she remained a member of the church until her death in, in the Salt Lake Valley. Mm. Now let's go on to section 91 about the Apocrypha. Do you have something to say about that? Just a little bit. I'll only say a little bit. Um like at this time, I think what uh, seemed to inspire this section was like the hot debate going on this time around, you know, the inclusion of the Apocrypha in uh, in Bibles. Uh, Joseph's King James Bible, for example, was actually, it actually had the Apocrypha right. in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joseph also didn't know who to listen to in these debates surrounding the inclusion of the Apocrypha. Like people were making all kinds of cases. And I guess people made sense, but not quite enough for Joseph to be able to be like, okay, this is what I got to do, or that's what I got to do. Uh, so he took the matter uh, to the Lord, the matter being if he should you know, translate and uh, revise the Apocrypha as he had, you know, done with the Old Testament. Um, but anyway, I really like the Lord's answer here. And, you know, I'm, I, I glossed over this section in the past, but like the Lord's answer here is just so, uh, I don't know, it's just so not dogmatic. You know what I'm saying? Just what the Lord, the Lord's answer to Joseph Smith is basically there's, a lot that's good and inspired, and there's also a lot that's not good and not true. So don't worry about translating it, because as it says in verse 4 here, the Spirit manifesteth truth. That kind of makes me wonder why the Lord didn't just give that advice when it came to the Bible, but I was more interested in the mm-hmm. principle in this section. The Lord's response isn't a uh, dogmatic declaration that yes, the apocrypha is true and you should translate and revise it or no, it's not true. Uh, and you should translate and revise it. His response is to simply apply Moroni's promise to the work to discern truth from error. And this is applicable to any text, any subject, any words, any, uh, any leader, not just the apocrypha. Mm-hmm. I just like that. This is the lens through which we should be reading any, everything, so it kind of like um, surprised me after reading this. Like, I'm just like, I don't see a really strong case to not read the Apocrypha. And I don't know how many members of the church have read or have not read the Apocrypha. I think there's a lot to be, a lot of positive things to be gained from the Apocrypha. Like the Gospel of Thomas, there's one verse there that I have likened a lot to my to my own personal journey. So there's clearly some truth to be found there. But I think uh, one of the reasons we don't encourage it is because... You know, it just kind of requires a lot of spiritual effort. You got to be really in tune with the spirit to be able to read. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that applies to anything. Don't, don't get me wrong about that. That applies to our readings of the Bible and of the Book of Mormon and, you know, of our listening to the leaders. But um, 
Yeah, I just really like that this counsel that the Lord has given us for the Apocrypha um, basically can apply to anything and should apply to anything, is that we should read and listen to and receive everything through the lens of the Spirit. It was just a refreshingly non-dogmatic answer Mm -hmm. from the Lord. What do you think about it? I liked it because it paves the way for... I really think it paves the way for um, individual responsibility. Absolutely. I think that we're socialized in the church to want to have everything spoon-fed to us. And like, <laughs> like I remember back in preschool where the teacher would actually set out our lunch for us and put everything and yeah. get our napkin and set out everything. I think that's what people want. People want everything to be set for them. They don't want to have to do any work. They yeah. want it to be black and white yeah. and they want to have certainty. And look... The real world is a is mess. There's mm-hmm. there's ambiguity. There's gray areas. There's um, and you see this when you read the New Testament as well. Uh, and you look at what Paul says in First Corinthians eight. He says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right? Mm-hmm. Because some of the people in Corinth were saying, "Oh, I know. I have the special knowledge that it's okay to eat." food sacrificed to idols because I know that the idols aren't real and it's just food. Right. Which is true. But that in context was hurting people. So that's where you've got these these messy areas where it takes discernment and wisdom. And this is something you can get from the Apocrypha. There's actually a book in the Apocrypha called Wisdom. It's also called The Wisdom of Solomon, which mm-hmm. is not actually written by Solomon. It's too late. It's what we call pseudepigrapha, something that's written by uh, under a, a false name. But here's one verse that I love from Wisdom. This is Wisdom 11, verse 24. I, I love it so much I'm going to quote it in two different translations. One is the King James Apocrypha, and this is what it says. For the, And this is basically a prayer to God. For thou lovest all the things that are, and abhorrest nothing which thou hast made, for never wouldest thou have made anything if thou hadst hated it. And then this is the New English translation of the Septuagint. For you love all things that exist, and detest none of the things that you have made, for you would not have formed anything if you had hated it. Now what does this say to LGBTs? Like, God wouldn't have made us this way if he hated us, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's so much self-hate, so much communal hate for my people. And I don't know why, because we're cute. <laughs> <laughs> and we're funny. And we're charming. And uh, But let me just back up and say, even gay people who are not cute, funny, and charming, they absolutely deserve equal rights and dignity, right? We shouldn't have to... earn anything right mm-hmm. like yeah and there's gonna be jerks that are an awful people who are gay right mm-hmm. we shouldn't base it on like oh look at these gays they're so good and noble and whatever let's no even the bad gays deserve to have uh the same thing that straight people do right you know you know straight people who are murderers are legally allowed to marry you can murder someone and still be legally allowed to marry mm-hmm. and then people now we have legal marriage in, in the United States. But for a while, people would say, oh, gays can't marry because there's a slight percentage 
that they're they're less effective parents, right? They're like ninety five percent as good as parents. Is you know who's not as good parents is murderers, right? <laughs> they were basically saying murderers, as long as they were straight, could legally marry, and they had no problem with that. But the fact that you would have two moms or two dads, and there's a fear that they might just not be as slightly as good as parents as straight people. Yeah, such hypocrisy. Anyway, so that's what I had to say about the apocrypha. I'm glad that you applied it to our leaders today because we absolutely should use the spirit to sift out the truth mm-hmm. from from what they say and confirm those things. Anyway, so that's all I have. Word? Yep. All right. I'm magically done. I don't know how that happened. Maybe it's because I'm tired. That's incredible. We actually did this in a relatively reasonable amount of time. I thought we were going to go to like the 120 mark. It's only 111. So before we go ahead and wrap up things, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at btblds. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Beyond the Block Podcast. Mm -hmm. And definitely check it out this week because I'm going to post this thing about uh, workers' rights and justice and the word of wisdom. Mm -hmm. I'll post that somewhere. And let's tell, are we going to tell them about the outlines situation? Absolutely, we should. Um, There's a lot of people that are working behind the scenes to, uh, you know, just make Beyond the Block a, you know, a dope product all around. Uh, for example, there's Tamar Kemsley who's out there who edits our show. There's David Doyle who edits our transcripts. We also got uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter who have been helping us out with our social media. And uh, also the team who is doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines. That includes uh, Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Jen Altman, Beth Johnson, probably some more folks behind the scenes. I don't know who all is uh, working on these, but these outlines, they also include... Um, uh, a compilation of the Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episodes from the same mm-hmm, week. Mm-hmm. So you can have basically a uh, one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me from the margin study helps. It's dope. So uh, we got links to the outlines that are going to be in the show notes as well as in the uh, drop-down menu on our website. Uh, same goes for the transcripts. And also, I can just... We got we got a little tiny URL link for the outlines. It's tinyurl.com slash Outlines. So, you know, multiple ways you guys can go ahead and access those resources, but they are out there just as ways for you guys to, you know, continue getting the most out of the show. Right. Definitely check out those outlines because they are very helpful. They listen to our episodes and take notes and the main points they put it, put it in bullet form so that if you need a refresher or if you don't have time to listen or you're preparing a lesson and you want to look at the major points from Holy Human and the Faithful Feminists and Beyond the Block and kind of all organize them as you are 
preparing to teach, that is a very good way. Because I know I talk, you know, here's the thing. I talk for, for hours and hours, and I don't even <laughs> remember what I say. Like, yeah. I don't know how people, without taking notes or without doing something, because people have said, oh, Derek, this thing that you said was really cool. I'm like, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> yeah, Derek never remembers the bars he'd be dropping. And also, I used to be taking notes during the show, and it was kind of distracting, but like, I can't do that. So the outlines and the transcripts have been helping me just you know, recall this stuff. I also yeah. just learned to get in the habit of marking the moments where Derek speaks some heat so I can like come back and refer oh, to it later. Yeah. Yeah. I also just don't like listening to myself talk. So I like, like listening to you talk. I don't like listening <laughs> to me talk. Like our voices are different. Oh, absolutely. Maybe, maybe in the resurrection, I'll have a pretty voice like you. No, you're going to have the same voice. No, because I'm going to be perfected. You're going to be perfected and your voice is perfect as it is. No, it isn't. You will not be Derek without your voice, bro. I will not, like, if you find me in the resurrection, be like, hey, James, it's Derek. And you got this like rich baritone be like, no, you're not. That's not Derek. No, that's me. It's not going to be Derek. I'm not going to accept it. <laughs> I will not accept it. But well, yeah. I'm going to have all, I'm going to have an eternity of jokes for you in the resurrection. <laughs> Just think about that. You won't be able to. No, like... <laughs> that's going to be my hell, bro. <laughs> that's going to be my hell. Like this is the primary motivation for me to make it to the celestial kingdom. If I get <laughs> if I get cast to the celestial kingdom or outer darkness, it's literally just going to be Derek jokes. Uh oh. It's going to be the same one every day. Or just different ones uh -oh. with increasing levels of cringe. That's my uh -oh. hell. So, Outer darkness. <laughs> Outer darkness, indeed. So, okay. Do we got events? No. Well, the the book club is still happening Sunday evenings. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this is Blair Ostler's book, Queer Mormon Theology. We've still got a number of chapters to go. So, join us on. Uh, go to the Facebook to find the link, and you'll figure it out somehow and the affirmation conference is next week too isn't or next month isn't it right it's in september september online and free online and free and there's a special church leader track so snaps i want all of you to invite your church leaders your local leaders to attend the conference and they've got a special uh sequence of programming i don't know exactly what it is but it's going to be the basics of how within your calling and within the constraints can you do the best you can for lgbt's yeah, that's great. All right. If there's nothing else, then uh, thank you guys for joining us till we meet again next week. Yeah. Later. Bye, everyone. <laughs>